This is the Hidden Why Podcast, episode 941. My interview with Eve Taro Paul. We're discussing our foodie culture. You're gonna love it. Enjoy. Hello, Eve, and welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's great to have you here. You've got some uh, fascinating work, and the the topic for today is is well being. So, I certainly want to get into that topic from your perspective and angle, but. Perhaps um, if you could, just for our audience, give us a little bit of a background about yourself and what you do. Yeah, for sure. So for the last decade, I've been doing research on foodie culture. I became super obsessed with this around 2010. Uh, I myself am a millennial. I was living in New York City. I was really broke in graduate school, but I was finding myself spending my discretionary time and money on all things food. And I looked up one day and thought, huh, I'm not the only person doing this. And <laughs> Is this a new thing, this foodie culture? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I mean, up, up until this point, being, you know, having this obsession with, with food, especially, you know, sophisticated food experiences was something that was for royalty um, or people who were older. It wasn't something for the young. Uh, you know, my parents' generation, they spent their money on drugs and music. (laughs) You know, it was like the food was just sustenance in order to to get you to the concert. Um, And now food and food experiences are the entertainment. uh, And it's what a great proportion of our discretionary income is going towards um, here in the United States, also in Australia. But um, especially over the last four or five years, my research has taken uh, me around the world. And it's just been striking to see the similarities in urban centers um, around around the globe. Yeah. Uh, this is what people find solace in. And uh, and anyhow, yeah, I'm, I'm just really uh, obsessed with figuring out the why behind all of this. The why behind um, the foodie culture? Yeah. Yeah. What, what emotions are driving us to, you know, buy avocado toast or CBD or watch other people eat on television? Yeah, right. That's an interesting, um, yeah, an interesting inquisitive sort of uh, bit of research there, I suppose, the why behind foodie culture. It's sort of something that, you, you know, I wouldn't consider, but I am a part of that foodie culture. I love food. I'm a cook as a background. And um, certainly on a Sunday morning, I often get up and turn on the, the Netflix cooking show and, and try and get right. inspired for, you know, yeah. what, I could, what I could whip up in the kitchen that day. Exactly. And so over the years, I have found that it is directly correlated with well-being. And so, you know, my most recent work is really looking at the intersection of all of this, uh, you know, with the basic assumption that, well, you know, if people are spending their time and money on something, then it's got to be fulfilling a deeper purpose okay when you say like it's directly associated with well-being what do you mean by that like well for example is that what drives uh, sorry is that what drives this foodie culture the 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 deeper why is is the need for a greater well-being yeah i mean at the end of the day we all have kind of three core needs and you know one of them is to feel safe and in control the Second is to feel loved and like we belong. And the third is for a sense of meaning and purpose. And these days, food culture is helping deliver on all three of those needs. And my latest 
book really was me just taking the time to kind of go through the biggest food and lifestyle trends and break it down and figure out, well, okay, like what emotions are driving people to spend their time or money on this? Um, you know, I think millennials in particular are often made fun of, uh, and, you know, people say, well, if they just didn't buy avocado toast, they could buy houses. And I think it's really easy to point your finger and say, you know, ha ha, you're being silly. But at the end of the day, like, you know, there's a reason we're buying avocado toast. And according to the research that I've been able to, to do and the people I've been able to talk to, it's, you know, we are searching for something that makes us feel good because we're have the highest rates of depression and loneliness and stress and anxiety. Um, we are trying to prove our self-worth through social media. So taking a picture of something that looks really pretty and that's a little bit expensive uh, is giving us something to, to brag about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, though, it is about, you know, what, what do we need to each feel well and how is that being expressed through these food and lifestyle trends? Right. It's 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 kind of deep, isn't it? Really, um, yeah, yeah, and broad at the same time. Yeah, it's it's deep and broad, which is why um, I I am still not bored of the topic. Yeah, I guess I mean you could go in all sorts of different directions, and that's why I think your book sounds so fascinating. Um, is because it sort of fills that that void of where else is this foodie culture influencing our well being and and what other aspects of our life is it affecting. Our well-being, mm-hmm. I suppose, as well. Um, yeah, and it, it's it's certainly something that we just don't think about. Like, there's never a thought in my head that I go sort of why why am I into this foodie culture? Other than, you know, I love cooking. I love the the form of expression. Um, but there's probably areas of of my obsession with the foodie culture that I just don't understand. And perhaps yeah. that's affecting me in a, a positive way, but it could also be affecting me in a negative way, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean it. it- I mean, I wouldn't say that foodie culture is affecting people negatively, except for, I guess, the really only exception there is, um, you know, food porn and and bragging. But really, the thing that I've been most interested in and that I focus a lot on in um, my most recent work is the impact of technology. What I'm really fascinated by is not just, you know, what are the emotions driving people to these behaviors, but, like, why is it that these generations, the first generations who have grown up in the digital age with social media and smartphones, why is it that we're all baking sourdough bread Mm. and obsessed with craft beer? Uh, And so a lot of my time over the last few years has not just been dedicated to to doing research on well-being, but also what's the impact of this new digital age on our ability to find well-being? And, you know, it, it was super shocking for me when I first got into this to be faced with the statistics around my own generation and now Generation Z, the generation younger than mine, um, on our rates of anxiety and depression and loneliness and stress. It's, um, I think it should be, you know, every, every headline. Um, so you you think this, this technology is having a big effect on our anxiety and stress and depression and all that? Without, without question. Absolutely. And is yes. that is that then uh, uh, you know the foodie culture also having a greater impact on on that because we're becoming more yeah, obsessed I mean, with the foodie I, culture and the way we share it is through those channels. 
Yeah, I mean, so it's one of these things where I don't believe that social media and technology are all bad. There are definitely facets of it that are great, such as I'm on the phone with you right now. You're halfway around the globe from me and we are able to connect. Yeah. Um, you know, especially during this, you know, pandemic, I'm extremely grateful for the technologies that I have. Um, I have a team of people, aside from the book, um, I started a nonprofit last year and I'm working with this fabulous team and we've never met in person. <laughs> um, mm. and we are so bonded to one another and it's, you know, cool. thanks to, to mm. Google Hangouts, um, and, and WhatsApp, you know, we are messaging each other all the time. So, this is this is not to say that I'm a Luddite and I, you know, think we should go back to, to being cavemen, but there are aspects to um, a lot of these platforms that we use that really aren't making us feel better most of the time. Instead, it's making us feel envious or jealous or it's making us feel scared. It's making the world feel like it's even more dangerous than it really is. Um I mean, we're obviously in this particular moment living through a quite frightening time in human history. But uh, even that said, in my time talking to academics and researchers, I really was learning about um, just the impact of 24-7 news notifications mm. and persistent text messages and a constant you know, inbox that's never really under control. And what these different platforms are doing to our sense of um, success, our sense of self-worth, um, how we value relationships. Um, and it's just been, it's been a fascinating ride for me. Um, and, you know, I consider it a privilege to get to, to share some of this stuff with, with everyone else. Yeah, it's cool. So it sounds like your interest in the foodie culture and the why behind that has led you to a a different area of research, which is the the impacts of technology on our lives and the well-being. Yes, exactly. And that wasn't what I had expected no. when I started out in this. Um, you know, it very much was challenging my own assumptions. Um, and, you know, since then I've, I've gone down the rabbit hole and, and talked to a lot of the leading researchers who are looking at the influence of these technologies um, on our on our well-being, on, you know, everything related to, you know, the amount of sleep that we get to uh, a sense of depression or yeah. a pressure to, to be perfectionists. Um, and then, you know, the way that I kind of view all of this is not just through the statistics or the studies that um, we find in academia, but what I find really interesting is then looking at those learnings and saying, well, okay, how is this reflected in the marketplace today? Uh, you know, how is this showing up in the way that people are choosing to spend their money and their time? Hmm. The foodie culture, I mean, is that, why has, why in your research, why has it come about? Like, because I, I can see that, you know, we all love food and um, we all eat food. So it makes sort of sense in that sense. But um, if you go back to previous generations where you say drug and rock and roll was the, 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 the common thing, well, it wasn't really common to everyone, was it? But it was certainly a, a part of that age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really goes back to those those core human needs. So uh, I kind of view everything through this lens of, yeah. of control, community, and purpose. Um, so, you know, for a lot of people, food today is a way to provide a sense of order in a world that feels increasingly chaotic. Right. Uh, and it feels increasingly chaotic for, for a number of reasons, uh, you know, having to do with those 24-7 news notifications, having to do with... Um, 
you know, taking your boss home with you in your pocket. You know, there's all these elements to the way that we're living now that are not uh, in line with the world that we as homo sapiens evolved for that's making us anxious and it makes people, things feel out of control. So, you know, being able to say yes and no to certain foods, um, avoiding certain foods, looking for brands that are transparent, those are ways of creating order, of um, creating a sense of autonomy yeah. in a world that feels increasingly out of control. Um, there's other aspects to our food culture that are very communitarian. It's about finding people who are like you or creating eating experiences with others that are very intimate. Um, this is in you know direct antith antithesis to the types of interactions that social media offers us. Yeah. Um, you know, food culture gives us the opportunity to look people in the eye and to share a meal. I mean, there's, you know, a few things that are really, um, more conducive to conversation, to intimacy, um, than, than sharing a meal. And it's, you know, I don't, it's, I don't think that it's a, su a surprise or I don't think it's unrelated that with the rise of these, uh, social media platforms that we see the rise of open kitchens and shared tables and shared plates and immersive dining experiences, um, or even boutique gyms, people just wanting to carve out that space for intimacy. Mm. Uh, and, and then the other part of this is, you know, the part of food culture that's about getting your hands dirty and getting out in nature. Again, to me, a direct response to lives that are increasingly tethered to screens indoors uh, and it's just been kind of fascinating to watch around the world as there's been a rising interest in things like baking or even like I lived in New York and ceramics classes were really big yeah. uh, last year. I, I traveled to Shanghai and there it was like painting classes were all the thing, <laughs> but that was the, you know, uh, that was the thing to do. Um, and we are, you know, by nature, individuals who need to have a sense of order, who need to feel like we belong to a community, who need to be at one with nature and using our bodies and our senses. And at this very moment in human history, the technologies that we are so deeply involved with are taking us away from a lot of those basic foundations to well-being. And the answer to it, the antidote to it, is arriving in many cases in the form of food culture. Right. Okay. So our, our changed lifestyles of isolation and, and technology is sort of forcing us to, to try and find ways back to this connection of, you know, people, relationships, nature and those things. Yeah, speaking of, am I, hearing, am I hearing a rooster in the background? Yeah, man, I've got three fortress. <laughs> she's, uh, she's, one awesome. of them is laying an egg right now. <laughs> yeah, they like to bring it on when I'm on the show here. It's great. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> And then they all get, they all start too. So anyway, um, yeah, beautiful girls. Um, so this is interesting and sorry for the distraction. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm curious to know when you got your chickens and why. I got, um, I've had chickens for a while. I, um, no, no, and then I got rid of them as I traveled overseas and then we got some back. So, um, now we just like having chooks. They're, they're really nice, easy pets and yeah. they lay, uh, they lay eggs and eggs are delicious, I think so. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and good for my girls. I've got two uh, two young daughters, um, eight okay. and five, so they try and look after them. Oh, that's uh, lovely. That's their little project as well, so they enjoy them as well. So yeah. Well, my my daughter is only eleven months, so 
but we just bought a house. So I, I, we, my husband and I have been debating whether or not we're going to, we're going to get chickens for a, you know, similar thing. I'll definitely get some. Yeah. <laughs> They're good fun. They really are. And you can just sit there and watch them and yeah, it's quite meditative. Yeah. Well, so, but this is, this is like the stuff that I've been doing research on is like, you know, why is that so soothing to us? And it goes really deep. Uh, you know, nature, we are, we are viscerally, physiologically rewarded for uh, interacting with nature. It's just kind of astounding. And also it makes complete logical sense that our bodies uh, will fill us with feel-good hormones by, you know, doing the things that were absolutely essential for our survival yeah. you know, a while ago. And now we're just, you know meditative it sort of gets you gets you out there too i just uh, met a gentleman in town here who who has beehives it's not his occupation he just bought beehives and he's now got many of them and he's mm-hmm. got really delicious honey and i thought that's a great idea like uh, imagine having a beehive in the backyard that you could go out there every i don't know how long it takes a few months and um get your own fresh honey a fantastic opportunity to get in the yard and and do something outdoor and do something that's actually you know where you can feel proud that you've actually done it rather than just going to the shop and buying it yeah. And I mean, bees are fascinating. Mm. So, you know, it's like part of, part of the research that I personally was, was most into myself, um, for this, for this latest book project was the, the research on nature, the, the kind of end of the book goes to our, our innate connection to nature. I got like deep in the weeds on the research on this because I just found it to be so fascinating. Um, but there part of what I was looking at is that spending time in nature actually fills us with a sense of awe that we're a part, we're just a small part of something much larger. Mm. And it's been recorded that, that it will give you a greater sense of well-being and meaning in life by yeah. spending time doing things like listening to a beehive. Yeah. Um, so, it put things yeah. into perspective, can't it? And I went for a big hike um, with with my family last weekend, and it was a ten k hike. And um, it was just that you actually forget about the stuff in normal everyday life that can often cause that stress, and it helps put things into perspective when you get back to say, you know, you sort of then align yourself with what's important, what has meaning, and what doesn't. And and you know, I yeah. think if you did it more often, you'd you'd be able to regulate that stuff a bit better so you're not doing that unnecessary non-meaningful jargon each day yeah i mean it's been super interesting too i'm i'm based in the u.s i'm in chicago so in the in the middle of the country um and it's been really interesting to see how people are spending their time and money during the pandemic Mm. uh you know here in the u.s it's still very much under lockdown at least i think most people are adhering to that yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. not everybody um but i think i think most um and you know and, and covid is, is something that we are are dealing with on, on a daily basis it is everywhere and when this first all started um there was actually like a run on baby chicks there these farms mm. were were selling out of their baby chicks there's also been um, record high pet adoption rates for cats and dogs. Um, and people are just, you know, craving that connection to nature, even while we've been forced indoors. Yeah. It is very interesting actually in real estate, cause I've got a, a career in real estate, um, people getting away from confined units and, and suburbia mm-hmm. living and wanting to, to get more into the country. 
um, because of, you know, if you have uh, to be self-isolated in the future, at least you can get into your own yard, you know. Yes. That space. Yeah. So there's there's a big yeah. transition there too. And I think COVID is in a positive way showing people that, hey, hang on, we don't actually have to go to an office space to work anymore. We can do it from mm-hmm. home and, and we're actually more productive. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's going to be a big shift too in, in the commercial uh, rental spaces, I think, mm-hmm. going forward and, and a lot more people going, well, you know what, I don't have to live in the city anymore. And, yes. and previously up until COVID really, it was everyone's going to the cities because that's where the work and employment is. Mm-hmm. Now maybe yeah. it'll be spread out a bit more. It's been so. I was hearing actually someone talk about what's happening in San Francisco. In San Francisco, I think a, a bit like Sydney in terms of the rent, like the crazy rent rates. Right. Um, and you know, people have lived in San Francisco because that's where you know Silicon Valley is, and and people feel like they need to be there for these tech startups. But you know, now people are realizing, like, wait, I can do all this work remotely make the money that I would be making in San Francisco and pay, you know, a quarter of what I was paying in rent by living in Montana or New Hampshire or Barbados, you know, wherever. Uh, And I think it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting really to see what happens with real estate. I I have a number of friends. um, I lived in, in Brooklyn and New York for a decade and I have a lot of friends who are still there who, and I know a few people who have just left and they don't intend to go back. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and people are learning like, oh, wait, I can grow some of my own herbs and some of my own veggies and fruits and, um, you know, go back to the sense of, of self-sufficiency or at the very least meet and get to know the people who are growing and cultivating those things, you know, for us. Yeah. Do you, do you think the, the COVID pandemic has increased this foodie culture? I, I'm guessing it probably has because I've started making sourdough and stuff like that myself. Yeah, it actually, for me, it's showing a lot of really positive signs for foodie culture. You know, I've heard from some people that, you know, they think, oh, restaurant culture is dead. Um, And I think that there couldn't be anything further from the truth. I think people are acquainting themselves or reacquainting themselves with how food is made, where it comes from. Folks are thinking about, uh, you know, every aspect of the food system. I think for a lot of people, especially in in the U.S., I I don't know how this is exactly elsewhere, but, you know, in the U.S., it's like you go into these grocery stores oftentimes that are just filled to the brim with different products and people pick up their package of chicken breasts and take it home. And they don't think about the fact that, you know, those four chicken breasts came from two chickens and, you know, what Mm. happened to the rest of the chicken. Uh, And in the U.S., a lot of the meat plant workers have been getting ill. And so people are starting to see these images of these meat factories on their television screens during news broadcasts. And when that started, I heard from a number of friends uh, saying, I just, you know, I hadn't thought about this before. Hmm. Uh, I hadn't thought about these, you know, what we're labeling as essential workers, which they are, of the people who are picking our foods and driving them and stocking it onto shelves and breaking them down. Um, and I think that that's uh, causing a, a rising appreciation for our food and our food system in general and, the, and all the people who make it happen, who get food onto our plates. Um, mm. But I do think there's another part of this, which is people reacquainting themselves physically and tangibly with where their food comes from. Uh, and also on a relationship basis, in the U.S., the searches for CSAs, which are community-supported agriculture groups, 
uh, skyrocketed at the start of the pandemic. Uh, people were, you know, trying to source their food locally. Um, and, you know, from the, the research that I've been able to do, everything that I've found shows that when we know the origins of our food, when we know the people behind our food, when we feel some kind of emotional connection to, to it, the food actually tastes better uh, to us. Mm. Uh, it, is, it is more satisfying to us. And I am hopeful that these trends will persist uh, even once the pandemic has ended. Mm. Yeah, I, I often wonder that. I think it might all revert back because I think, I don't know, part of me just thinks everyone will fall back and get busy again and, and that busyness will lead to, you know, I'd like to do it and be great, but, you know, I've got too much on and I'm just going to go to the shop and buy a packet. I mean, if it's entirely possible, I do think that there are certain aspects, though, to this way of living that, you know, parts of it are less satisfying uh, and other parts of it are are meditative, are fulfilling. And, you know, I kind of think of it as like the Great Depression. You know, it's like people's grandparents in the U.S., there's still, you know, a lot of people who um, hoard things who won't throw out anything because they lived through the great depression. Um, and I'm anticipating that there are certain behaviors that will, that will continue. Um, I think that in all likelihood, the stuff that will, um, persist are going to be the things that also save us money, obviously save us time that are delicious, that are Instagram worthy. Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to make sourdough bread every week in all likelihood. Um, no, I but, definitely will. <laughs> but I, if I was going to say, I was going to say, but like people like my husband will just carve out the time to do it. I'll make sure it happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, but yeah. I think a lot of people won't, I think, and you know, it's a shame if it gets lost. I, I sort of hope that this teaches us to slow down a bit and work less and, and do more of these things that actually are good for the well-being and, you know, connect us with others. And, um, yeah, and that, that would be nice to stick around, but, um, yeah, I, so, so the last year I started a nonprofit called the Food for Climate League, and part of what we're working on as an organization is creating a new narrative around food and the climate. Um, you know, a lot of people, the, the common narrative right now is that you have to give something up in order to do something good. So it's about giving up meat. It's about you know limiting your waste. Um, the reality is that there's so many amazing things out there to eat that we just don't eat, and if we ate a greater variety of delicious, nutritious things, uh, we could reverse the climate crisis. Mm. Uh, and soil is uh, the the greatest uh, tool we have for sequestering carbon. Um, it can have a greater impact than taking all of the cars off of this planet. And uh, the other reason why I think that some of these behaviors are going to persist is that they are better for the climate. Mm. And... In the long run, uh, honestly, in like a not very far off long run, um, we're going to be forced into a lot of these changes um, simply based on the availability of, of certain foods um, and how businesses are going to be forced to shift. So I think that this crisis is proving that we as human beings are resilient. Uh, we can adapt. We can change our behaviors. We can find the silver linings. Hmm. Uh, and we can find something delicious to, to get us through. Yeah, I like it. love the conversation about food. It's pretty awesome. What, um, with the foodie culture, I mean, is it all good for our well-being? Because, I mean, I see a big part of the foodie culture in some of the shows on TV is, 
you know, looking for the biggest hamburger or looking for the biggest yeah. meal that you can shove into your face and all these sort of shows, which, which can't obviously be good for the health. And um, being that we're isolated and depressed, I think when you like that, you, <laughs> you tend to then eat more because it makes you feel better and that's obviously not going to be good for the gut. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of two divergent trends happening. Mm. So um, one is this is like food porn, right? So it's like watching something that's glistening or oozing on uh, your you know, television screen yeah, yeah. or yeah. on Instagram. Mm. Uh, I, I found a bunch of really interesting studies that show that, that looking at images of food or even w- reading words associated with food, it simulates your olfactory and gustatory cortexes. And one of my theories is that, you know, a lot of people are working so much, they're not able to sit down for a real meal. We are sensory deprived. uh, And there is just something that feels really good about looking at those food porn images. Um, Obviously, there is a part of it that is feeding into a food culture that is counterproductive, that is not healthy, that is focused on excessive amounts of eating. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, there's actually this like counter movement of orthorexia, which is the fear of eating. Mm -hmm. A lot of social media is filled with stories that, you know, soybeans will give you cancer and um, bacon is, you know, I don't know, gonna, it's just every single thing that you could think of is dangerous, right? Whether it's gluten, whether it's meat products, whether it's soy products or milk. Um, what do you call that? It's orthorexia. Orthorexia. There you go. Yeah. It, it's the fear of eating and it's become more common over the last decade. Um, is that just because as, of the health movements of, of, you know, vegans well, or, or, whatever, paleo. It's related to it, but it, at least through the research that I've been able to do, um, it's correlated to, first of all, general, just higher rates of anxiety about life, you know, things feeling out of control and then people wanting to control a certain part of their, their lives. Mm. Um, food is, is one of, you know, a conduit, um, to control, um, that, that is easier to take advantage of than, than other aspects of our lives. Um, but it's also the fact that we are less familiar with where our food comes from and what's in our food, mm-hmm. uh, paired with access to the internet and, uh, and a lack of trust in our expert institutions. You know, the, the rates of trust have plummeted around the world over the last decade in government and big business. And there is this, you know, feeling that people have that we all need to figure it out for ourselves, that we can't trust others to tell us what's safe to eat and what isn't. Mm. Uh, And then you go down this rabbit hole where, you know, you can Google is a muffin healthy and you're going to get 18 different perspectives and you don't know who to listen to. And some people are going to tell you that it's going to cure you and help you live a long life. And other people are going to tell you it's going to kill you instantly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so it's, this is not to say that, you know, food culture is the panacea for um, our lives. There's definitely, you know, dark and counterproductive aspects to to foodie culture today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wonder how much people, like, you know, investigate themselves because I think a big part of it is taking responsibility. And I don't know in your research if you've found that people are doing more of that, but I get a feeling they're probably not. They're just, you know, going for what feels right to them. But 
when you start, like for me, when I started watching all these food channels and listening to um, different people talk about different diets, I started then, you know, experimenting myself and trying to understand Mm -hmm. what seemed right for me and what didn't. And I'm not a specimen of perfect health by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly there's now practices that we've incorporated as a family that I think are are probably better ways of of eating um, and, and well-being. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people are doing, you know, self-experimentation. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think, and I think, but I think a lot of that does have to do with, again, like questioning this like story that you've been told of what to eat. You know, uh, know, the government gives you a pyramid or a plate or whatever, you know, you're, you're taught, you should have a certain percentage of protein and a certain percentage of carbohydrates. And people today are just questioning that authority and Mm. saying, well, Maybe what my body needs is different than what your body needs. And maybe you're being paid by a lobbyist. (laughs) Maybe, you know, big food is spending money uh, on dinners for the politicians. Maybe there's something nefarious going on here. There's a lot of skepticism these days, Uh, and, and rightly so in many cases, um, you know, other times it's overblown, but you can't know, you know, it's just, it's just too hard to figure it out. And so I think the, what a lot of people have found is that the easiest thing for them to do is just experiment on themselves, uh, you know, see what feels right for them and then, and then go with it. Mm, yeah. I think that's the best way of life in general, um, is to have that curiosity and keep experimenting to find out, you know, not just with what you eat, but what you consume and what you do. Yeah. Um, in life in general, what um, where do you see the foodie culture going from from here? I mean, I'm I am hopeful that this trend of a more localized and more hands on food culture will develop. Um, yeah, That'd be good I, to see. it would be great to see. I, you know, in talking about those diets, I think that the the danger that we've run into um, over the last few years is kind of looking to an influencer. Hmm. And looking at what they do and just trying to emulate it instead of figuring out what works for you, what makes sense for you, what makes you feel good. Um, And I really appreciate the kind of change in um, attitude on social media. I feel like social media has become a friendlier place since the pandemic, (laughs) Um, uh, you know, where people it's not as much about bragging. Because, like, what do we really have to brag about right now? I don't think anyone has much to really brag about. Um, Instead, it's become this place for supporting one another as we all learn to cope. Uh, And, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that we will have a food culture that is more supportive of one another, of of our local communities. I think it's a really big thing. Um, And also, you know, here in the U.S., we cannot ignore the the massive and and incredibly important racial justice movement that's happening right now um, that's forcing people of all colors and all backgrounds to pay attention uh, to injustice in a way that we haven't been called on to do in quite a while. Um, I haven't been forced to do, I should say, in quite a while. Uh, and I do think that that is going to show up in food culture and I have immense hope that that will persist, that, that at least in the U S that we will have a food culture that is, uh, increasingly diverse, but appreciative of the diversity within our own nation, um, in terms of talent, in terms of what grows in different regions, um, 
and, and just a kind of a broader perspective on what what tastes good, what is refined food, what is good eating. Mm. Uh, I think that there's more delicious and more interesting years ahead of us in food culture. That's good to hear. I'm excited about that. <laughs> I, um, I, I certainly feel that um, ethnic food cultures have a really positive impact on um, on Western um, food culture. Do you th- do you think? Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, ethnic food culture is Western food culture, right. and there is this whitewashing um, that has happened in this, and and um, co option of people's heritages that has happened um, around the world. And we're we're at a point now where I think that that kind of cultural appropriation is being called out more directly. Um, This is, you know, this this in and of itself is is a very complicated topic. There's something really beautiful in food of cooking other cultures' foods and learning the flavors of it and the traditions that. I think brings people together. It helps us understand that we are all human, that, um, Hmm. there's so much shared between us. Uh, you know, great food is great food. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's something that's really wonderful. I think the the problem that we've run into over uh, the last many years is, you know, kind of the predominant culture kind of taking bits and pieces um, of, you know, quote, ethnic cultures, uh, and assimilating them without giving appro- appropriate credit and reverence, uh, where, where it's due. And, you know, I think that we're facing head on those, um, privileges, uh, and at the end of the day, you know, it, facing these things is difficult and it's uncomfortable, but it's also going to make our world um, so much richer, <laughs> in hmm. my opinion. Um, really, it's this understanding that of our of our differences, but also our equality and our shared humanity. That, to me, you know, you're talking about what makes us feel well, what what connects us to others. I think that this is, you know, equally if not more important. Um, and it's something that I think, you know, frightens some people because it challenges the current way of being. But at the end of the day, um, it makes me extremely hopeful. Um, but also, you know, I'm kind of seeing this, this from a foodie perspective, seeing this beautiful culinary world just awaiting us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what I experienced. I lived overseas in Japan for many years. And the food culture there was very localised, you know. They'd have little shops scattered around the, the towns and you'd go there and buy local produce that was grown locally, um, you know, very good for your well-being. You're surrounded by um, farms, you know, in, in a lot of yeah. places, not in the big cities, obviously. But even in, in some of the larger cities, you'd still have, you know, plots of land where they're all growing veggies together. Um, yeah. So there's that part of it. And then the other part is just the really you know, hands-on and and creating food and not just scoffing a big plate and then being done. It's sharing that food and creating it together and and then communicating and having that whole experience behind the food, which I think is is so healthy. And I hope that the foodie culture that we're experiencing now really brings that more to the forefront, which is it's certainly not really there right now in Australia, at least where I am from my perspective, but I think it's going to be more and more um, evident going forward. 
It's also it's also been really interesting for me too to to kind of see you know over the last few months there's been a growing emphasis on immunity you know people wanting to boost their immunity and a lot of people are going online buying supplements. Hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, what's going to boost our immunity is eating fruits and vegetables that are grown in healthy soil. And right now we live in a world with depleted soils. Uh, we have killed the microbiomes of our soils, um, which in turn is means that we're growing and eating foods that aren't as good for us. And, and I think it's really easy to become disconnected from the very basic reality that any food that we eat in, inside of it is nutrients that were once in the ground, in the earth. Yeah. And those nutrients are what fuel our existence. Yeah. And you know, I hope that there will be, you know, as we kind of, as this foodie movement, I think, continues to build, as awareness of the climate crisis continues to build, uh, people become increasingly aware that what we eat is the most efficacious tool we have for combating the climate crisis. Um, you know, I hope that people also begin to see that it's not just about addressing the climate, it's also about addressing our energy and our immunity and eating foods that are really, really tasty. Um, there's, there's so many different things that we can be doing better that will have all of these, a multitude of positive impacts on us, mm. um, both, both for selfish reasons and for altruistic reasons. <laughs> yeah, man. Love it. Can I ask you a question? What, um, if you were to be served your last meal, what, what would you eat? Or what would you request? I would request any food eaten with the people I love. Okay, good answer. I know that, very I broad. Know that that's a, a cop out, but it it really isn't. I, I don't really care what it is that I would be eating. To me, what makes food and food experiences so is enriching the is the people. Yeah, nice. What uh, do you have a favorite cuisine? Um, so my husband and I have this very nerdy debate. Uh, about which quiz, which world cuisine is best. We're extremely fortunate. We've been able to travel around a lot. That's what we've prioritized um, personally um, and financially. Uh, we debate whether it's Mexican or Thai as the winner, yeah, right. as the best cuisine. Uh, both both have really rich culinary histories, but also both of them. Um, have a, have a really strong emphasis on the blending of sweet and sour and spice and acid, uh, and saltiness that, uh, you know, again, really nerdy debate, but this is what we talk about, you know, <laughs> is, is it Mexican food or is it Thai food? What would we want to eat forever? I love it. I love it. I'd love yeah. to hang out with you sometime if I'm ever over there. Cause we could just talk about food and um, yeah, I, I would take you out. I can tell you that. Indulge ourselves in that in that culture. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I wish you all the best with the book, Hungry Avocado Toast, Instagram Influences, and in our search for connection and meaning. Um, I'll stick the link in the show notes for everyone listening out there, so jump onto thehiddenwide.com and pick yourself up a copy. Uh, Eve, is there any final thoughts or anything you want to mention before we go? No, I don't think so. I, you know, just take care, focus. I think everyone needs to continue focusing on their well-being. We're we're all grieving, we're all coping. Be kind to yourself, and if you can find a solution by eating food that's great for you and great for the planet, then yeah. go to it. How can people best reach you? 
Uh, you can find me on my website, which is eveturopaul.com, T-U-R-O-W-P-A-U-L.com. And you can find out more about the book at thehungrybook.com. All right. I'll stick those links in the show notes too. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Eve. Great conversation. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate it. Everyone out there, check it out at thehiddenwild.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon